We'll be thinking this morning about this interesting interaction that Jesus has with this uh, woman from Samaria. And I want to point out to you something, and I began to point this out to you last week, that uh, the way John um, communicates in his gospel is he underlines for certain details that, if you really think about it, aren't necessary for the telling of the story, but in them there is significance and symbolism that should make us think of the Old Testament. And John introduces this account by telling us that all of this took place at Jacob's well. Now again, you could have left that detail out from our perspective and think that that really is not necessary, and yet it is indeed very significant. It is a signal for us to think about the importance of wells in the Bible. And in particular, what we find in the Old Testament, specifically in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, we frequently see that a well is a place that a bride was courted to her husband. And the ancient Jew, when they read this, the fact that this all took place at Jacob's well really would have jumped off the page to them. They would have thought of of this theme of wells and courting. In fact, there's one commentary I I read where the subheading was wells and wooing because frequently it's, it's where a bride was wooed to her husband. And if you think about it, John has... He's already prepared us to see this, has he not? We last week thought about John 2 and how Jesus performed his first sign at a wedding. Uh, we, uh, at the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist uses the illustration of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. We've already been primed for this encounter and we are being invited to see it through this lens of of Jesus calling a bride to himself. He was coming to court not only this woman, but all those in Samaria whom his father had chosen. There was a bride there. And that's why we read that he had to pass through Samaria, not wasn't necessary geographically, But there was a bride there that his father had chosen for his son. And so he had to pass through Samaria. And it's it's interesting when we look in the Old Testament, one of the accounts of courting that occurred at a well, it's in Genesis 24, 58. And that's when Abraham's servant uh, came to find a bride for Isaac, and he met Rebekah there. And the, the question to Rebekah there is, will you go with this man? Will you take this man as your husband? Will you go with him? And that's essentially what's happening here at this well in Samaria. And I believe from this conversation between Jesus and this woman, we can learn much about his grace toward us, so much about his gospel, much about our own struggles with sin. And I think at the same time, we can 
see those that we have shared Jesus Christ with. And because we see in this woman typical reactions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see this woman resist Jesus. She tries to evade him. She has no intention of spiritually going with this man. And yet the account ends as Jesus persists with him revealing himself to her. And she comes to know him as Savior. And so let's, let's walk through this passage here. And we, we first, in the beginning here, see in this woman an intense resistance to Jesus. We're told that this encounter happened around the sixth hour. That would have been noon. And that was the hottest part of the day. And nobody in their right mind went to the well at noon. And for this woman, that was the point. Her life was a mess. She was a serial adulterer and fornicator, and she was overwhelmed with shame. But she could go to this well at noon and not have to see anyone or talk to anyone, not have to feel the convicting looks of her neighbors. But this time is different. She encounters Jesus. Verse 7, she came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now you notice Jesus engages her, and, and the text sort of underlines how unusual this is. But it's clear that she does not want to talk with him. She uses the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans and the gender divide as excuses for not talking to him. She said, how how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? Her response is essentially, why are you talking to me? Leave me alone. She wants nothing to do with him. And keep in mind, this was a woman who was obviously comfortable around men. She wasn't concerned about societal norms. She had sought comfort and satisfaction in the arms of men. And yet here's the perfect man. The God-man, Jesus Christ, and she wants nothing to do with him. But Jesus continues. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus is offering himself to this woman. He is the gift of God. He's beginning to show that he's a different kind of man. But then we see in the woman's response a sort of skepticism about Jesus. Now, living water in the Old Testament is is so often used to speak of God's saving grace, his salvation. But it's clear at this point, this woman really has no idea what he's talking about. What's her main concern? Well, coming to this well was a daily reminder of her shame. And she had no doubt sought other sources of water. Maybe there was another secret place. Another place where I could go without anyone knowing, where I can avoid the shameful looks of my neighbor's where I can avoid being convicted of my sin. 
So she had likely looked for other places and found none and become skeptical. And that's why she says to Jesus in verses 11 and 12, and again, notice the skepticism. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's skeptical. And it's really not unlike the response of Nicodemus in the previous chapter. She has no idea what he's talking about. She first resists him, and now she's skeptical. This this man actually knows a real source of living water. And that's really exactly the kind of response that Jesus got from Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again or or born from above by the water and the Spirit. And and Nicodemus essentially says, gee, that sounds great. How can a man be born when he's old? You see, this woman is as blind as Nicodemus because he's talking to her about spiritual life, quenching spiritual thirst, and she cannot see and she cannot understand. And I think we can see ourselves in this woman. Many of us, when we came to Christ, often uh, had that initial resistance to Jesus, that skepticism about Him. And maybe you're here today and you've never come to Christ. You've you've heard the gospel, but you're resisting Jesus. You, You don't want His intrusion into your life. And friends, even if you are a believer, for all of us, we can still be so skeptical of Jesus and the promises that He makes to us. He promises that He's working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. That He promises us sanctification and growth and joy and communion with Him. And so often we just think, well, that's, that's a nice idea. That'd be great. But is it really true? You see, this same kind of skepticism can remain in the heart of the believer. Failing to believe Jesus and trust Him. And it's clear here that this woman just wants Jesus to back off. But you'll notice how He persists. He he knows that she still thinks he's talking about physical water, but notice how he brings her on along patiently. He says in verses 13 and 14, after she talks about how great Jacob's well was, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds in verse 15. And you notice how she's coming along. Now she, she moves from an intense resistance, from skepticism. Now she has a cautious optimism about Jesus. He's speaking more clearly about the water of eternal life. 
the water of His grace and love that quenches dehydrated souls once and for all. The water of the Holy Spirit that could be within her a spring welling up to eternal life. I want you to notice here the the interesting language that Jesus uses. He's talking to a woman, and yet he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if you were talking to a woman, wouldn't you say her? Welling up in her to eternal life? But why is this woman there getting the water? Because there's a man in the house, and that man is not her husband, and she's there at the noon hour because though the sun will scorch her, she goes to avoid being convicted of her sinful lifestyle. And Jesus, with the language he uses, gives her a hint that he just might know why she's there. He speaks of the man who will drink this water. And he's essentially saying, you and he will be thirsty again. And this whole shameful process, this whole sad routine will be repeated day after day after day. But she's still hoping that he's talking about real living water. And she responds with cautious optimism and says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see, she may have had an inkling that Jesus knew. He knew what was going on in her life, but she turns the conversation around. She's saying, I don't want to ever have to come here and feel this shame again. But friends, we know our guilt and our shame and our sin cannot be taken away until we are first confronted with it, until we first acknowledge it. You see, no matter what this woman tried and no matter what we try apart from Jesus Christ, our shame and guilt will always be a burden to us. And so then we see in verses 16 to 18 a a gracious confrontation by Jesus. He says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. He confronts her sin, but notice her response. She says, I have no husband. Now, that was a kind of half-truth meant to deceive Jesus. It was true that she had no husband, but she was hoping that Jesus would say, well, I guess I made a mistake. And that would be the end of it. But Jesus, like a surgeon, puts in his spiritual scalpel, and he says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And now she knows that Jesus knows. 
This woman had sought fulfillment and satisfaction in the arms of men. And this pattern of failed relationships was a clear symptom of her spiritual sickness. And Jesus puts his finger on the real issue. And we need to remember this. When Jesus puts his spiritual scalpel into our lives, he's not doing it to be cruel. He's not doing it because he doesn't love us. He is doing it because he loves us with a perfect love. He has compassion on this woman because of the sad state of her life. She's seeking to quench her spiritual thirst with the wrong things. She had done what we so often do, what we read in Jeremiah, forsaking the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and digging for ourselves wells that can hold no water. We see Jesus' pity on this woman. He sees the sad state of her life. He sees the shame and And friend, we need to be reminded of that in our dealings with unbelievers. I think too often it's easy for us to view unbelievers as our enemies. And we could treat them harshly. And yet we need to see the sad, pitiful state of their their lives and have compassion on them as we see their great need for Jesus Christ, as we see them looking to the things of this world for satisfaction and coming up empty again and again, we need to have that same compassion our Lord did. Now, if you have a good memory, you'll remember how we thought last week about how there were six stone water jars and the significance to the Jews of the numbers six and seven. And if you read this carefully, you'll notice that there were six men in this woman's life. Remember, six is the number of incompleteness, the number of imperfection. And that makes Jesus, what? The seventh man to come into her life. The perfect man, the saving man, the God man. He is here and he's graciously asking, will you go with me? And so this woman, she resists Jesus. She's skeptical with him. Then she's a bit optimistic. And then Jesus confronts her with her sin. And it's clear she doesn't want to talk with him about her personal problems. Friends, that can be one of the clearest signs of willful sin in our lives is that we just don't want Jesus intruding into our lives. And so she follows up with one more desperate attempt to avoid Jesus. And we see it in verses 19 to 25. We see this evasive response. Now, look at verses 19 and 20. And we... And we often look at this, and this is indeed a great theological treatise on what worship is, worshiping in spirit and in truth. But think about what just happened. Jesus had just confronted her and exposed her sin. He had somehow sovereignly knew everything about this woman. And here's her response. I perceive that you are a prophet 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, that was a very important matter. That was a very important question about worship, but it was kind of the hot topic of the day. It would be like, imagine this. I know none of you would ever, ever shoplift here, but imagine you got caught shoplifting, red-handed. And you got caught, they have you on camera, and they say, we got you. And, and you say to the security guard, you know what, you are really wise. What do you think about the target boycott? It's, a, it's an attempt to change the subject. It's, it's an important matter, but it's not the matter at hand. And yet Jesus amazingly gives her a profound answer, but he still brings the conversation back around to her. He speaks of how the day is coming when the temple and everything associated with it would come to an end and worshipers from all parts of the earth would worship him in spirit and in truth. He says the Father is seeking people to worship him. And, and the idea is he's saying to this woman, the Father is seeking you to be a true worshiper. The Father is saying like, Abraham's servant said to Rebekah, will you go with this man? And her response is, well, I guess it'll all be clear one day. Verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. That was her final attempt to get Jesus to back off, to end the conversation, but he so graciously pursues her. And in verses 26 to 30, we see a thirst quenched by Jesus. She makes this last-ditch effort to end his intrusion into your life. I know that Messiah is coming. I guess we can just put it off until then. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you, Am he? That might be the clearest self-revelation of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. It is what we read in the I am sayings of Jesus when he is showing himself to be the great I am, the son of the living God. That's what he says here. I who speak to you, I am. He reveals himself savingly to this woman. Is this not a beautiful picture of how he saves us? He pursues us. We resist him. We're skeptical of him. Maybe a bit cautiously optimistic. We try to evade his confrontation of our sin, but he persists. And like this woman we know the transformation of the grace of Jesus Christ. You notice how she went back and she, her shame was clearly lifted from her. She, she tells others of the grace and relentless love that, that Jesus showed to her. Friends, we have the same kind of Savior. How encouraging it is for us that He saves and sanctifies those who resist Him 
those who in their weak faith are skeptical of him, those who try to resist his intrusion into our lives. There's a, I think a beautiful detail here. You know, here is a woman. She'd sought satisfaction in all the wrong places. She came up empty again and again. Her life was messed up. She was trying to deal with her sin in her own way. Jesus gives her this spiritual water, this living water of his salvation. And look at verse 28. Another detail, it doesn't really matter to the story unless there's significance. She left her water jar. Water jars, you didn't leave your water jar. You needed that to live. But John sees this as sort of an emblem that she knew that she would never thirst again. And as we read this, we need to ask the question, how does, how does Jesus quench our spiritual thirst? How does He give us this fountain of living water welling up to eternal life how does he cleanse us from the shame and guilt of our sin again we're given a detail here we are told that it was about the sixth hour or the noon hour when this conversation took place and there's another place in john's gospel where it's the sixth hour And there's another place where we read of thirst. The sixth hour was the hour of the cross. And it was on the cross as darkness covered the face of the earth, as Jesus was forsaken by his Father, as he bore our sin and our guilt, he cried out, I thirst. Jesus was physically thirsty, but that was emblematic of his experience as the sin-bearing lamb. You see, just as living water in the Old Testament was a picture of the salvation and the presence of God, so thirst was a graphic symbol of being under the wrath and the curse of God. The well of his father's presence had run dry. As the just wrath of the father for all of our sins was placed upon Jesus, the sinless one. You see, we have to look to the cross. To see how Jesus can say to us, I will give you living water that will be a spring welling up in you to eternal life. See, brothers and sisters, it was at the cross that we see the gift of God, Jesus Christ, given for you so that you can never thirst again. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your persistent love for us, your great patience with us. Lord, how often we 
resist you and try to evade you and don't want you putting your spirit scalpel into our lives, but we pray, O oh God, that we might see how gracious and merciful you are. Lord, pursue us. Cleanse us from our sin. Forgive us for trying to deal with our sin in our own way. Bring us cleansing. Lead us to Jesus Christ, the one who is the living water. And may we find satisfaction and joy in him. And like this woman, may we be eager to tell others of his greatness and his glory. We pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.